Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilatunova in Thornton, Colorado. You're listening to Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. Let's open with prayer. Avenu Malkenu, our Father, our King, Lord, we thank you uh, that you have brought us together once again for an opportunity to sit and to study and to learn of you, to worship you via the medium of uh, Bible study. Lord, we ask that you will send your Holy Spirit into our midst to cause us to remember the words of Yeshua, to remind us of your covenant promises that you've made for us, to uh, cause us to uh, worship you and to um, uh, be able to learn of you. Father, we ask that you will um, raise us up as um, voices in this generation, that you'll help us to have a, uh, a boldness about our speech, that you'll cause us to not be ashamed of the good news that we're sharing with others. But Lord, uh, uh, give us open doors of opportunity to share our witness and to share the message of Torah. Lord, we seek to, um, to uh, convey to others that uh, we believe that uh, we should be uh, availing ourselves of your words and of your ways. And so we take this endeavor seriously. Uh, we thank you for each and every student that has joined tonight. I pray that you'll um, continue to bless them and raise them up, continue to heal them, uh, continue to bless, uh, to um, protect them from the adversary and from evil men. And I pray that you'll just give us an understanding, a heart to know you and to do your will. Uh, bless you, Lord, for all of these good and perfect things. And we are careful to praise you, Yeshua, in all of these things. Amen. <clears throat> well, it's date stamp the recording. Tonight is August the 16th, 2016. And this is week 37 of our Galatian study. And for those of you who are joining us not live, but after the fact, you're certainly welcome to join us every Tuesday evening from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. Um, we meet for an hour each week, and we just go over the Galatians notes via the commentary that I put together. You can find my commentary online in two primary locations. You can either go to my personal website at tetzetorah.com, T-E-T-Z-E, T-O-R-A-H.com, and from the menu on the top, just click on the Galatians commentary and follow the um, uh, notes on the screen. Uh, you can access it either via PDF or there's a web version, or um, 
go over to my congregational website at graftedin.com and from there uh, look along the top and uh, find the drop down menu and find the uh, Galatian study there and click on it be be aware that there's two different audio versions to the Galatian study because one of them's 10 years old and this one's current but the PDF version the PDF notes should be identical so you're certainly welcome to join us. And if you can join us via Skype every week, that's even better. We have a live chat that we engage in for about 15 or 20 minutes or so after each hour-long teaching. So if you join us live, then you can participate in the chat. And um, it's a nice time to be able to share your ideas, toss some thoughts around, uh, comments, correction, things like that. Without further ado, let's read some liturgy. Uh, for those of you who are in the live class with me tonight, you'll see I've got, hopefully you can see this on your screen, I've got um, a blessing uh, called the Birchata Torah. We're starting a new section tonight called the Summary, and so I'm just going to use a, a generic, uh, kind of a standardized um, Hebrew blessing that is found in just about every prayer book that I can find, a, a Jewish prayer book. And so if you've got a prayer book, this is going to show up in your prayer book. But uh, let me read the English first, just a standard blessing for before engaging in Torah study. And then I'll read the Hebrew that goes along with it, okay? The English reads, Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to engross ourselves with the words of Torah. Please, Lord our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and in the mouths of all your people, Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, may we all together know your name and study your Torah for the sake of fulfilling your desire. Blessed are you, Lord, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who chose us from all the nations and gave us the Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. May the Lord bless you and keep watch over you. May the Lord make his presence enlighten you, and may he be kind to you. May the Lord bestow favor on you and grant you peace. Let's read the Hebrew of that same blessing. The Hebrew reads, the second part of the blessing reads and the last part, which is easily um, recognized by many of us as the uh, Aaronic benediction reads, And that will be the Hebrew portion of the liturgy. For the um, Greek part of the liturgy, I want to read a passage out of the Galatians chapter 2. If you'll notice, throughout the entire Galatians study, all 37 weeks, I've tried to use 
a when I, I read the portion out of the um, uh, apostolic scriptures, the New Testament, I've been using something out of Galatians, since it is a study on the book of Galatians, and I've been selecting passages that are more familiar to those who study the book of Galatians, and so I'm going to read the uh, the little incident, the interaction between Peter and Paul in Galatians chapter 2, a very familiar set of passages. Uh, let's just jump into the context at verse 11, chapter 2, and we'll stop at verse 16, so just 11 through 16. For the English part, this is the ESV, and it reads, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them, so that even Barnabas, who was led astray by their hypocrisy... But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all. I think some people say Cephas, um, but I know the Greek is uh, Cephas, and I know the, Gre the Hebrew is Cephas, so I just say Cephas. So I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And that is our English. And again, I selected this uh, for obvious reasons. It's a very familiar passage to most of us who've studied Galatians for any time. And it's also one of the central arguments that's brought forth in the book of Galatians to describe uh, the problem in Galatians and to describe the solution in, in, in two short verses, 15 and 16, function like the heart of Galatians for many commentators. Let's read the Greek of that as well. For the Greek, I've chosen, um, I think this is the Nestle 1904, which is basically the Greek New Testament version. Uh, either that or it's the SBLGNT, the Society of Biblical Literature, Greek New Testament. I can't remember. Uh, it's one of those two. But um, I'm using the uh, BibleHub.com version, interlinear, which allows me to see the Greek word, the English word, and then the, uh, the, the parsing underneath, the morphology, you know, the adverbs, adjectives, parts of speech, etc. And then right above the, uh, the um, transliteration, uh, there is a, um, a Strong's numbers, uh, things like that. So it's kind of a handy little site. Uh, you might check it out if you get a chance, biblehub.com. All right, let's read those same verses, 11 through uh, 16 in the Greek. Uh, it reads, Hati de elfen kifas eis antiochian kata prasopan auto antestein hati kategnosmenos, gnosmenos. In pro tu gar elfen tinas apol Jacobu metaton ethnon sin uh hati de elfon hupastelon kai aforitsin huitan fobemanos fobumenos tus ek peritomes verse thirteen kai sunapekritisin auto kai hoi leip loipoi judaioi Huste kai Barnabas suna pekeste autantes hypocrisy. Verse 14. Al hati de al hati edon hati uk 
orthopodusen prosten alethien tu evangelio, epon ta kefa emprosten panto e su judaios hu parakon etnikos kai uk judaikos zeis posta ethne anankad zeis judaitzein. And verse 15, Hemes fuse judaioi, kai uk ex ethnon hamartoloi. And then verse 15 and 16 are the heart of the matter um, where Paul starts to kind of express uh, his central theological beliefs regarding justification and, and, and salvation. And it reads, Edatas tehati u I'm sorry, dikaiutai anthropos ex ergonamu in me dia pistios Christu Jesu. Kai, hemes eis Christon Jesun epistusimen, hina decai othomen ek pistios Christu, kai uk ex ergonamu, hati ex ergonamu u decai othesitai pasasarks. And we'll stop there. Even though really Paul starts, he continues his thought about if, you, if however, you're seeking to be justified, a de zduntis decai othenai. Um, in Christo, if you're seeking to be justified in Christ, and he goes on to talk about uh, things like that. But we'll stop there at verse 16, and that'll be our liturgy for the night. Okay, uh, this is Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary, and I've got on the screen right now um, the website, my own website, the webpage that is actually the Galatians commentary page. Just briefly, you can see the uh, table of contents and see where we're going Um Tonight we're going to start the summary section, so you see we've made our way quite a while, uh, quite a ways through the commentary. We're actually more than, uh, from, a, from a contents perspective, we're more than halfway through. But unfortunately, once we start to uh, work our way through the excursus, which is the tough passages, some of, those, some of my commentary in there is, is a bit lengthy, so we're not even really halfway through the, through the commentary. All right, let's jump into the summary. For those of you who have um, who have accessed this commentary via the PDF document, which is the one I've been working from, teaching from, we're on the top of page 70. And let's see how far we can get down through. I, I'm, I think I want to stop a little bit early, about 10 or 15 minutes early, and I want to talk a little bit about Romans chapter 3 and 4. I want to bring part of that into our commentary, kind of a mini midrash on Romans 3 and 4 and, and make some apl practical application for us uh, before closing. Let me read, and then I'll stop and comment only as necessary, okay? Topic number 9, Summary. In my historical research into this book by Shaul, the Apostle Paul, I've discovered that much of the social fabric of the first century Judaisms that we read about suffered from a sickness that I like to call ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism. And I've written about this concept in another paper that dealt with studies on group prejudice, a, st a study that I wrote when I was um, getting my bachelor's degree in psychology. And I believe the paper that I wrote then nicely summarizes our study on Galatians and helps to form the necessary social background required to properly understand the book in its original historical and religious context, and therefore have decided to include a, include a quote from that work here. So this is from my school paper that I wrote here. Uh, it's, I pulled a quote into my own Galatians commentary. It reads, quote, The New Testament writer Paul of Tarsus, a.k.a. Apostle Paul, had much to say about the Judaisms of his day and the ethnocentric cultural requirements they were imposing on the non-Jews. To be sure, Paul is traditionally misunderstood by the Christianities of today as teaching an abrogation to Torah, 
circumcision, and Jewish culture as a whole. In a word, ethnic genocide. A proper understanding of Second Temple Judaism will uncover many of the true motives driving the ethnic competition between Jews and non-Jews. Group-level stereotyping of Gentiles by Jews as pejorative pagans with no viable and positive contribution possible for the Jewish community can clearly be seen in this research. Negative attitudes by the Jewish community turned into prejudice against non-Jews, which led to discrimination against non-Jews as an ethnicity and eventually provided the Jewish leaders with a mechanism for installing anti-Gentile group policies that were racially driven. Indeed, the power to enforce group prejudice and discrimination is what gives racism its social advantage over subjugated minorities, end quote. And that's lifted from my um, Towards Understanding 1st Century and 21st Century Jewish Attitudes, Studies in Group Prejudice, uh, that I put together a few years back. So, um, what am I really trying to convey here is that with, I, I don't want to make it sound like the Jewish people were stone-cold um, prejudices against, um, racists against the Gentiles. But when we study from a, at least from a, say, a sociological perspective and a, and a, and a, um, a psychological perspective, uh, if we study the phenomenon of the first century and see the social interaction between these two groups, the, the people groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, at least the religious Jews, then we can't help but notice similarities between modern-day prejudices and racialism, r racism uh, when we use that particular um, lens. And so it's not improper to uh, imagine uh, that type of scenario where first-century first religious Jews were essentially not even allowing non-Jews a chance to... Um, enter into covenant membership with Israel unless they change their ethnicity first. And that type of language, that type of forced ethnic change, is um, it's unfortunate from the Gentiles' perspective, at least to the perspective of, of trying to maintain a Gentile heritage. Because if you were a Gentile and living in Paul's day, you didn't have really much of a choice if you wanted to gain membership into Israel and be recognized on a legal basis. So it's within that um, it's within that social worldview I think that we're going to gain an appreciation for uh, understanding what Paul's trying to um, teach in the Book of Galatians because that forms the background historically for the Book of Galatians itself. Let's keep reading my commentary and you're going to see this uh, played out. The Book of Galatians obviously includes an ongoing drama involving two social groups. we got the Jews and the Gentiles. And I think it's not so much over the identity of Jesus Christ, but perhaps more over who has the right to join Israel, that is, who's a Jew, and subsequently follow after the Torah of Moshe. Right? In other words, from, Paul's, from, from the perspective of the Jewish people in Paul's day, the Torah was leveraged as a trophy that was the sole possession of Israel. It was Israel's mandate to keep the Torah that God gave her on Mount Sinai. And the word Israel, in my statement, was defined, or at least presented, I don't know so, how, so much, it wasn't really written down this way in their writings, but it was, it, for, for all practical purposes, from the first century religious Jewish mindset, Israel was a Jewish-only entity. Israel was comprised of Jews only. Therefore, when we say that the Torah 
from the first century perspective was for Israel only, that's tantamount to saying that the Torah was for Jews only. And given that uh, exclusive view on Torah, if a Gentile wished to enjoin himself with Torah observance or become obedient to Torah or start down the path of keeping the Torah, he first had to contend with this ethnic problem. Because he wasn't born a Jew, then essentially it was a, it, he was blocked from access to the Torah. So let's keep reading. Recall that the Torah was historically given to Israel near, nearly 3,500 years ago. But recall that Israel's post-Egypt beginnings included both native-born sons of Jacob as well as those mixed racial multitudes that God delivered out of Egypt during the Passover. So we begin to see that really from a biblical perspective, Israel really isn't a Jewish-only set, even from the very beginning. These two groups came to the foot of Mount Sinai, that is, clans of Jacob as well as those mixed multitudes. These two groups came to the foot of Sinai. These two groups received the words of God. And these two groups were collectively called Israel by the text. Go back and read the Exodus narratives carefully again. God calls the group Israel. They gather, perhaps as a mixed multitude, but the minute God formally cuts a covenant with them, in other words, um, announces his words to them, the ten words, the Asrat Hadrim, and they respond, all that you have said that we will, all that you have said we will do. Basically, from that point forward, they're Israel. They're Israel. And then, then we can um, just simply read the text Israel and know that what we have in mind, what Moshe has in mind when we're reading Israel in the text, is the mixed multitude plus clans of Jacob, but they're both called Israel. And this forms the paradigm for salvation, as we're going to see. Paul later reveals, as I continue to read my commentary, Paul later reveals that the, quote, mystery of the gospel, end quote, is that according to Romans 11 and Ephesians chapters 2 and 3, and specifically Ephesians 6.19, Gentiles are, quote, grafted into the commonwealth of Israel via Messiah and become fellow heirs sharing in the richness of the root of the olive tree and, and, this is a very important and, inheriting the blessings spelled out in the Torah for all of obedient Israel, end quote. Did you guys catch that quote there? Very important. And I'm lifting that essentially from uh, 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 Ephesians passage there. Right? The Gentiles get grafted into Israel, and therefore the, the document that was given to Israel must equally apply to the Gentiles who are grafted into Israel. Makes sense. So for the church to come along, or for anyone that is, for the Jews to come along, or the church, either one, I pick on the church quite often, but the Jews are equally guilty. National Israel teaches that the Torah is for Jews only. Right down to this day, they essentially teach the Torah is a Jewish-only document. And the church teaches the same thing. I'm fond of saying that if you were to take a clipboard with a survey over to your average synagogue and ask the rabbi and the congregants, uh, to whom is the Torah for, who is it? who was it given to, and who has the responsibility to keep it, more or less you're going to um, find that uh, the, the synagogue is going to tell you the Torah is for Israel. It was given to Israel. It's for the Jews. And then if you take that same clipboard and survey over to the traditional church and ask them the same question, 
you're going to get a similar answer. The Torah is for Israel. It's theirs. It was. It's for Jews only. In other words, we don't have to keep it. It's not our responsibility to maintain it, um, etc., etc. So both groups today, both historic people groups, the Jews, the national Jews, and the historic church, both of them essentially, as I see it, teach the same thing when it comes to responsibility to the Torah, and that is, it's a Jewish-only document. But I disagree. I strongly disagree. <laughs> And uh, I'm going to catch flack for that, but that's okay, because I think the Bible disagrees. Therefore, since Israel, as I continue to read, top of page 70 way, since Israel is actually a multi-ethnic entity, like we read about it in uh, Exodus 20, Torah actually applies to all who name the name of the Lord as their one and only God. And that's why I said I disagree. Torah is for all who name the Lord is their God. This naturally includes Gentile believers in Yeshua, who of course name God as their God. The God of the Gentiles is the God of the Jews. Plain and simple. And therefore, if the God of the Gentiles is the God of the Jews, then the Torah of God is the Torah for the Gentiles as well. And it, 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 to me, it's a no-brainer. I, I understand some people can't, uh, consider that and can't understand that and i'm certainly open to dialogue with you if you have questions or comments concerning that help me understand your position i'll see if i can help you understand my position a little better maybe we can come to some common ground let's keep reading let's let's go back now and take a look at what we've covered so far in these sectional chapters to this messianic jewish commentary to the book of galatians all right so what i'm going to do is i'm going to go back and we're just going to talk about in brief some of the main topics that we covered uh, when we studied. One of the first topics, and this is hopefully in the order that we covered them, circumcision. Here's what I had to say. In section 1, we read in Genesis 17 how God commanded Abraham to be circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. God also commanded eight-day-old baby boys to be circumcised later on in the book of Leviticus. Circumcision was a command of God, so the Jews took it uh, the Jews rightly took it seriously as they do with all of God's commandments. And what I mean by that is they simply take God at his word. They they try to, to understand the literal of what God is commanding first before we try and figure out the, the, the parameters. Let's just do what God asks us to do. Um, in other words, it's better to obey than it is to try and figure out whether or not we, uh, we should or should not obey. So Jewish people essentially take God uh, literally when God says circumcise, so they, they don't in other words, they don't try to spiritualize uh, circumcision away. They, if God said, cut the foreskin off, then that's what Jewish people do. At least Jewish Israel does. From a practical application perspective, speaking of circumcision, we Jews do not believe that the laws come to an end in Messiah. Therefore, we still practice infant circumcision right down to this day. Circumcision pointed towards the promise of God that he would bless Abraham with many descendants, culminating in the quintessential son of Abraham, Yeshua the Messiah. And that sentence there that talks about um, what circumcision pointed towards, um, you can see that if you go back and read through the uh, Genesis narrative, starting in about, say, chapter 12 and working your way through, say, chapter 17, read those and notice the progression of events leading up to Abraham becoming circumcised and Abraham's... Um, uh, believing in the Lord and God counting it or crediting it, accrediting it to His account as righteous in Genesis fifteen six, all of that is a very good way, in my opinion, to understand that circumcision is pointing to the promise 
of, of multiplicity, the promise of blessing, the promise of, of increasing the offspring through the chosen son of Abraham, the, 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 the promised son of Abraham, which from Abraham's perspective naturally pointed to Isaac, but spiritually pointed to Yeshua. Make sense? Okay. So circumcision is that outward sign of an inward promise, an outward sign of an inward reality, a, a, a promise of the inheritance. And that's that's actually what Paul says in Galatians. So um, circumcision pointed towards that by remaining loyal to the Brit Milah, the, the, the covenant of circumcision, which is what um, Brit Milah means here. The covenant of circumcision, male members of Israel were si- signaling their continued reliance not upon the flesh, the member of procreation, to bring about God's promises in their lives, but instead they were demonstrating their continued dependency upon the miracle-working power of the Lord Almighty to enact blessings in their lives. Make sense? Circumcision was, was given to Abraham somewhat as a punishment. I mean, it pointed towards the promise, and it, and it acted as a sign of the inheritance, but also, at the very practical aspect, it was somewhat of <clears throat> God saying, no, 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 Abraham, don't try to take things into your own hands. Don't try to bring about the promised son by fleshly means. This is God speaking to Abraham. You cannot cause the promise to come to pass under the power of the flesh. You must, by faith, believe that I am bringing the promises to pass in your life. You simply need to walk in obedience and faith. Faith and obedience working together. But if you if you drop into the flesh, if you start if you fall back into the flesh, which is what the um the uh, incident with Hagar represented, if you fall back into the flesh, then you disrupt the promises of God. You bring confusion, you add confusion to the equation. And so circumcision was God cutting away the flesh from the member of the of procreation, the very member, the very body part that Abraham attempted to use to bring the promise to pass. Make sense? So circumcision is, is, is also couched within that um, understanding of the biblical text. So let's keep reading. So now that we know that that's what Abra- that circumcision points to, even though Messiah has now already come, Historically, circumcision still serves as a reminder that all who wish to be counted among Abraham's genuine and lasting children must appropriate the same faith as Abraham had. That is, faith in the promised word of the Lord. End quote. And that, that quote is essentially the way that Paul interacts with the narrative in the book of Galatians. Remember, I like to imagine that in, in his preparation for the, to writing the book of Galatians, Paul went back through the Galatians narrative, I'm sorry, he went back through the Genesis narrative again, particularly the story that I suppose uh, starts in, say, Genesis 12 and ends about in, say, Genesis 18, 17, 18, somewhere around there. Read through those chapters and start to begin to appreciate Abraham interacting with God's promise of multiplicity, you know, to bring about a lot of children, uh, the promise of progeny, but also Abraham's interaction with Hagar and with Sarah and with circumcision and specifically in Genesis 15, Abraham's dialogue or interaction with God over the word of the Lord. And that's kind of the zenith of the story is where we see Abraham's faith being demonstrated 
to the capacity that Moshe writes it or describes it as, and God accredited his account as righteous. And thus, that word, that term, accredited as righteous, is covenant language that's tantamount to salvation. That's why Paul uses it, uh, Genesis 15.6. Paul uses it and lifts it and carries it over into not only the book of Galatians, but also into the book of Romans to demonstrate kind of the moment when God recognizes that Abraham's faith has matriculated and therefore God um, uh, imparts uh, uh, forensic righteousness to Abraham. In other words, Abraham becomes saved if we use 21st century Christian lingo. So, And it's faith in the promised word of the Lord. Faith in the promised word of the Lord. Not faith in the flesh. Not faith in his circumcision. Not faith in his ethnicity. Not faith in his good works. Okay, let's keep reading. So circumcision, for the first century, it was a hot topic. And by Paul's day, it had lost its simple, what I call surgical meaning. And it had taken on a socio-religious meaning. And I think that goes a long way towards helping us understand the book of Galatians. Instead of being a sign of the Abrahamic covenant, like we read about in Genesis 17, 9 through 14, and Leviticus 12, 3, uh, circumcision became code word for Jewish ethnicity. It became a circumlocution, kind of a metonym, a way of speaking of the Jewish people without actually saying Jewish people. You could just say the circumcised, or they of the circumcision faction. And circumcision also was one of the key requirements in first century Judaism for conversion to Judaism for Gentiles who were not born Jewish. So circumcision itself was being leveraged as the um, deciding factor of who was a Jew and who wasn't a Jew. It was one of the ingredients. Quite simply, I say on my commentary, it was being misused by the Judaisms of Paul's day to seal the deal for Gentile proselytes wishing to be counted as legally recognized Jews and therefore, quote, righteous, and quote, Israelites in the Jewish communities. That sentence that I just read there is, in my understanding, one of the keys to understanding uh, the book of Galatians itself, right? Um, understanding that, that, that circumcision was one of the key requirements for, circum for conversion, helps us to get a better gain a better appreciation for the consternation that it caused Paul when he um, w when he started swimming uh, upstream when he started swimming against the mainstream theological position that the Torah was for Jews only that covenant membership was for Jews only that God was the God of the Jews only that circumcision turned a Gentile into a Jew etc etc all of those theological beliefs, were being um, tossed around in the first century, and Paul had to combat all of that with the genuine gospel. That uh, genuine covenant membership was uh, granted to anyone who had faith in Yeshua, not to those who became Jews. Let's keep reading. This was quite upsetting, this, uh, this concept of Gentile proselytism for the, for the ostensible sake of becoming a covenant member. This was quite upsetting to Paul, because the Torah, the law, prescribed no such ceremony. There's, there's nothing in the Torah that is commanded that Gentiles turn, Ju Ju that I'm sorry, that Gentiles become Jews for the ostensible sake of becoming covenant members. Nothing like that exists in the Torah. This is completely man-made. Proselyte conversion was entirely a man-made rubric and an unnecessary one at that. Paul taught, 
All right, listen up. Paul taught that believing Gentiles and Jews were both genuine covenant members. And both, top of page 72, both were covenant bound to follow Torah, including circumcision. So it's very simple. Because both Jew and Gentile and Messiah are covenant members, and because the Torah is for covenant members, then it stands the reason, using my syllogism here, that that Torah is for covenant, I'm sorry, Torah is for Jews and Gentiles. So did you guys understand the basic logic? Because the Torah is for covenant members, and because Jews and Gentiles on Messiah are both covenant members, therefore, the, the, my, my conclusion following from my two premises, therefore, Torah is for Jews and Gentiles. That's my basic syllogism. And I think that's a better way to understand Paul. It's a better way to understand the scriptures as a whole, because it doesn't teach that the Torah is for Jews only, and, and it doesn't teach that covenant membership is for Jews only. We don't end up with this bilateral ecclesiology where we supposedly have two people groups of God, a Jewish people group of God following the Torah, and a Gentile Christian people group of God following the supposed New Testament. That type of theology only leads to confusion when it comes to trying to understand the biblical narratives, the biblical promises, the biblical prophecies, and consequently the book of Galatians as a whole. So, let's keep reading. Paul only dissuaded... So you're probably asking this question. Well, if, if, if Galatians is not about Paul trying to get the Gentiles to stop trying to keep Torah for the sake of salvation, then what exactly is the book of Galatians about? Why did he warn them away from uh, circumcision? Well, let's keep reading. Paul only dissuaded circumcision in Galatians due to Jewish misuse of this God-given sign. Make sense? It's a contextual... Um, application of of taking uh, circumcision away, and 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 even then, Paul's not going to he's he can't uproot circumcision because circumcision is a biblical command. Paul has no right, Paul has no authority from God or from Yeshua to uh, cut and paste or to uh, what do we say? Snip, snip, snip to just to just. Um, delete parts of Torah at, you know, at will. Paul doesn't have that freedom. There's nowhere hinted in the Torah itself that uh, a prophet is going to come along or an apostle is going to come along later on and begin to remove parts of Torah at will. Instead, what Paul is doing is he's exercising the right of halacha. He's exercising the right, in my opinion, of group policy by taking circumcision not away from Torah, but rather moving it to back burner status. That's what I mean by dissuading circumcision in Galatians. He's simply going to take it out of focus. He's going to put it on the back burner while the Gentiles, while the Gentile Christians can um, better get their um, get a get a better understanding of what it means to be a covenant member. Once they gain that appreciation of genuine covenant membership via faith in Yeshua, then we can bring circumcision back into the discussion. Uh, because we haven't misunderstood it. Makes sense? I think it makes sense. Let's keep reading my commentary. What then exactly does Paul indicate when he teaches we are, quote, circumcised in Christ? What is this phrase referring to? Well, the short answer is that to be circumcised in Christ means one is saved, taking the word circumcision here to refer to circumcision of the heart, indicative of genuine faith in Yeshua, Jesus. And, and you know, that's Christianese 101. Most people know that circumcision of the heart refers to salvation. To be sure, a few verses later we read, quote, 
For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's what we read in Romans 4.3. There's that phrase again that Paul lifts from the Torah, from Genesis 15.6, and pulls it into his teachings about circumcision. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. When we say Abraham believed God, it, we're, we're referring to the circumcision of the heart. And of course, again, I'm speaking to the choir. Circumcision, the, the word itself, implies cutting something away, whether it's physical foreskin or spiritual unbelief. So circumcised in Christ obviously means unbelief has been cut away from the heart so that one sees Messiah by faith, and such faith saves him. Thus, Abraham is the father of the circumcised as well as the uncircumcised. The term circumcision in Paul's day, let's keep reading, I think we're at least going to get through the section on circumcision, and then we might uh, stop and then uh, pick the rest up next week. The term circumcision in Paul's day quite often implied Jewish identity by context, however. So, um, and, and, and in and of itself, that's not wrong. In and of itself, it's, it wasn't incorrect. It wasn't, Im, Im, what's the word I'm looking for? It wasn't uh, improper for the Jewish people to describe themselves as the circumcised. There's nothing there's nothing really theologically wrong with describing the Jewish people as they of the circumcision, the circumcised. Uh, to use it as a, a metonym or a, or a synonym or a, a, a circumlocution for Jewish identity. There's nothing wrong with that per se. The entire chapter of Romans 4, which we're going to look at here in a moment, is Paul's exposition to combat the first century mistaken notion that Jews and only Jews were genuine covenant members in Israel. And that's the point I think is going to go an extremely long way towards helping us modern Bible students understand and unlock the key to Paul's use of the phrase circumcision, especially in Romans and Galatians. We've got to contend with the idea, even if we don't agree with it wholeheartedly, we have to at least allow for the idea, and I think it's best if we simply accept it based on uh, the historical research, the sociological research um, that has already been um, uh, made available to us as as, uh, modern Bible students. The idea that the first century Jews mistakenly believed that Jews and only Jews were genuine covenant members in Israel, that that exclusive view on on covenant membership drove religious Judaism to impose the proselyte conversion ceremony on the Gentiles who were seeking to join Israel. And that helps us to understand um, how Paul is going to have to describe genuine covenant membership using the language of circumcision of the heart instead of circumcision of the flesh. All right, let's keep reading. Recall that in uh, Jewish for Jewish males, they were circumcised as eight-day-old baby boys, right? Read Leviticus 12.3. In other words, the the Jewish boys who were born to Jewish parents and receive physical circumcision, in effect, according to common Jewish reasoning, they were born with covenant status. See how that works? In essence, if we were to use modern Christian lingo, Jewish baby boys were born saved. Now, don't get confused. I'm not saying that they really were saved, but what I am saying is that there are two levels to the covenants that we as Bible students need to recognize. There is the natural level of covenant membership, and there is what we might call the spiritual or lasting covenant membership level. And so from a natural covenant member perspective, 
Indeed, it's true. Jewish boys are born with natural covenant status. To be sure, when you read through, um, say, Romans chapter 11, and you encounter the olive tree metaphor that Paul uses, and Paul talks about um, wild branches, wild olive branches, and natural olive branches, notice carefully in Romans chapter 11 that the wild olive branches are brought in from an outside location. They're brought and joined to the existing natural olive tree. Notice that Paul does not say how the natural branches got to be on that tree. So what is the conclusion that we can, uh, that we can form? What is, what is the, um, what, what, um, what, what can we understand from his analogy? At the very least, we can assume, I think it's a safe assumption, that the natural branches got there by birth. That the natural branches were born into that, into that uh, position. That doesn't mean that they're genuine and lasting covenant members. But it does mean that they are, in effect, just like I mentioned, born with natural covenant status. Okay, let's keep reading. The reason circumcision gets brought into Paul's discussion so prominently, in my, in my opinion, and I say prominently because if you, if you just take a survey of the verses, if I rattle them off here, Romans 2, 25-29, Romans 3, 1, 1 Corinthians 7, 18 and 19, Galatians 2.12, Galatians 5.2-11, Galatians 6.15, Ephesians 2.11, Philippians 3.3, Titus 1.10. Go back and read all those passages. Paul is prominently speaking of circumcision. Why does he even do this? In my opinion, it's because by the first century, Israel was using the term circumcision more as a sociological term that referred to Jewish status than as a covenant sign that pointed to the Abrahamic promise of Genesis 17, 9 through 14. Make sense? So, in the eyes of these ethnocentric Jews of the first century, circumcision was the sign that guaranteed them covenant status and salvation. From their limited perspective, you can co- uh, correspond this with Acts 15, 1, where it says, where we read about the some men were imposing that um, you must be saved in order you must be circumcised in order to be saved that's the language that's tossed around in the first century Jerusalem council discussion that we read about in, in Acts 15 unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses you can't be saved what does it mean that unless you're circumcised you can't save i believe if we decode that basically those those religious leaders in the Jerusalem council were saying unless you're jewish you can't be saved and the word saved there is a lingo for covenant member covenant member. In, in other words, to say unless you are circumcised you can't be saved is tantamount to saying unless you're Jewish you can't be a covenant member. I think that's what Acts 15 is implying. And that's of course from their limited perspective. So let's keep reading. So if a Gentile from from their perspective, from from first century religious Jewish perspective, from their self-understanding of the matter, if a Gentile wished to join Israel, a man-made ceremony of the proselyte was prescribed in which one could ostensibly change your ethnicity and become Jewish. Basically, in Paul's day, it wasn't so much that the religious Jews were expecting the Gentiles to um, become biological Jews. Such a thing is impossible, in that sense, if we were to describe Jewishness in terms of biology. Such a thing is impossible. That's, In other words... Um, Males can't become females. Females can't become males. 
from a biological perspective, Jews can't become Gentiles and, and the opposite. That's, that's what I mean from a biological perspective. But that isn't really what was happening in first century anyway. They weren't really focusing on biology. So don't even make that an argument. Instead, essentially what's happening in the first century, as I understand it, is that the religious Jews were seeking to turn the non-religious Gentiles into religious Jews. See my point? The focus is on religion, and the focus is on social status. So, it's the religious and social, the socio-religious status of the Gentiles that the socio-religious Jews were seeking to change. They were seeking to change that socio-religious status and grant those Gentiles the recognized legal status as Jews. And so, couched in those terms, it is entirely doable to change someone's socio-religious status or legal status. We go through these changes all day, all, all the time, right? Every time you get married, you change your legal status. Every time you... I, should say, I shouldn't say every time because it's not something that you should be doing willy-nilly. But the, every time you read about it or watch it on TV or something like that, every time someone gets married, a, a, religious, a, a social status uh, change takes place. A legal status change takes place as well. Um, if you convert from one religion to another, then a religious status change takes place. So these are the types of things that we're talking about. So don't get confused. All right. Um, let's read down through... Let's see. Can we can we get down to works of the law? I think we can. Stick with me. All right. So we're near the bottom of page uh, 72. And we're starting in this paragraph here. For those of you in the class, I just highlighted it for you. So if a Gentile wished to join Israel, a man-made ceremony of the proselyte was prescribed in which one could ostensibly change their ethnicity and become Jewish. And because the same prevailing Jewish views believed the Torah to be a Jewish-only document, once a person earned their Jewish status, the Torah became their covenant possession and responsibility. <clears throat> Make sense? Once the Gentiles became Jews, then the Torah was given to them. And the promises and blessings of Torah were applicable to these new covenant members, albeit Jewish covenant members. Now, we know that this is the correct understanding of these opening verses because of Paul's line of reasoning later down on the passage in Romans 4.9. And, and I want to actually look at Romans 4.9. So, um, maybe we can do it right here. Okay? Let's read Paul's, um, let's read Paul's uh, uh, quote from Romans and see how Paul is describing genuine covenant membership being either for Jews or for Gentiles. Let's let's see this. This is this is why I say we can be we can know this is the correct understanding. I think that most Bible commentators catch this, but it's amazing how many biblical commentaries fail to um, flesh this out in regards to application of Torah for Jews and Gentiles. All right, let's read this quote. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Pause. What's Paul mean, circumcised or uncircumcised? Well, we already talked about it. Circumcised means Jewish people, and uncircumcised means non-Jewish people. So basically Paul's asking a rhetorical question, speaking of the blessing of Abraham that he just described in the previous passages, the blessing of promise, the blessing of, um, I'm sorry, the, uh, yes, the blessing of salvation, uh, which is what he just described. And we're going to see this in a moment. Is this blessing then only for the Jews, or is it also for the non-Jews? And then he gives this example. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness, quoting the, uh, the Genesis 15, 6 verse again. How then was it counted to him? 
Was it before or after he had been circumcised? What's he saying? Was it before or after he became Jewish? To use that to carry over the uh, the metonym here. It was not after, not after he became Jewish, but before he became a Jew or before he was recognized as the father of the Jews. Now, I'm not saying that, that Abraham really did become a Jew in Genesis um, uh, 17, where he becomes circumcised. I'm not saying that, that, that he did become a Jew then. What I am saying is that, according to the biblical narrative, he is identified as the father of the circumcised in that passage. And so, because circumcised and Jewish were somewhat synonymous terms, you could think of it as saying that Abraham became a Jew, but I wouldn't want to push the metaphor that far, because then it really does teach that circumcision is the sign of Jewishness. And I don't, I don't believe that's what the Bible's teaching. Circumcision isn't the sign of Jewishness, so much as circumcision is a sign of covenant membership. See the difference? I believe it's better to say that circumcision in the Genesis narratives is the sign of covenant membership. It's not the sign of Jewishness. It became known as the sign of Jewishness by Paul's day, and that's precisely one of the problems that Paul has to deal with. So let's keep reading. If I were to paraphrase these two verses in Romans, the ones we just read, Romans 4, 9, and 10, if I were to paraphrase these two verses and insert the implied historical, grammatical, and sociological meanings, they would sound something like this. So look at this. For those of you in the class, I'm just going to read this paraphrase, and then this should kind of take us to our conclusion for, uh, for this topic of circumcision. Listen to this. Is this blessing that those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered because the Lord will not count his sin, in a word, salvation, is it only for those with legal Jewish status or also for those who are not Jews, that is, the Gentiles? For we state with certainty that salvation was counted by God to Abraham as righteousness in Genesis 15.6, and the scriptures are definitely reliable. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he became Jewish? It was not after, but before he became Jewish. End quote. So that's kind of my paraphrase of Romans 9, I'm sorry, Romans 4, 9 and 10, uh, rendered using, implying, and supplying, or inserting my understanding of the social background. All right, let's keep reading. I think we're going to make it through the end of this first part of the summary. The notion of Jewish-only Israel and a Jewish-only Torah is also corroborated from reading the surviving non-inspired Pharisaic writings from before and after the destruction of the Temple in 70 AD, namely the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Talmud, and the other rabbinic writings, etc. They indeed help us to better understand the historical, grammatical, and sociological background to our own inspired apostolic writings, viz. the New Testament. Lastly, Circumcised in Christ does not necessarily mean that physical circumcision is no longer valuable. I've heard that before, especially in Christian circles. Obviously, Jewish communities are not going to be teaching that circumcised in Christ means that physical circumcision is no longer uh, uh, valuable. This is obviously a Christian argument. Um, but what does Paul say? What does Romans 2.25 say? Quote, For circumcision indeed is of value, if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Right? End quote. Very curious passage. I don't have time to unpack the entire meaning. But at face value, at the Peshat level, at the simple levels, which is what Peshat essentially means, um, 
circumcision indeed is a value. So how can we as a Christian church presume to teach that circumcision is worthless now that Christ has come? I think it's a, a disservice, does it? Excuse me, does a disservice to not only to Judaism, but to the biblical text if we teach that circumcision is no longer valuable. And then also, what does Romans 3, 1 and 2 say? What then, I'm sorry, then what advantage has the Jew? This is Paul writing again. Or what is the value of circumcision? And he asked the same question, basically. What is the value of circumcision? And he answers for us, much in every way. You would think that if Paul were towing the traditional Christian party line, that in answer to his question, what is the value of circumcision, Paul should have answered by saying something like, mm, not very much. But instead, Paul says, much in every way. So Paul didn't seem to think that circumcision had lost its value in Christ, and therefore neither should we. What does the verse continue saying? To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. End quote. And that's where we're going to stop in our um, look at the summary. Next week we'll jump into this section called works of law or works of the law. And so for the final, just five minutes real quick, uh, let's jump over to Romans 3 and see this. Um, I think it's self-evidence. We talked about this a few weeks ago where we looked at Romans 3 and 4. And it's to me, it's, it's, it's extremely important that we um, understand or appreciate that Paul is not likely trying to explain to anyone, whether the Galatians or to the Romans, that Torah has been done away with or that Torah is for Jews only. They, these are two pillars of error, in my experience, that prevent many Jews and Gentiles from coming to, towards a, to a common understanding of what the biblical text is trying to convey. These two pillars of error, the, and they, they, they form convictions in, in Jewish and Christian communities. The Torah is for Jews only, that's one of the pillars, and the Torah is done away with. The Torah has been um, uh, superseded, or the Torah has been fulfilled by Jesus. Those two pillars of, of uh, again, these are my words, pillars of confusion, pillars of error, pillars of um, conviction, whatever. In my opinion, they, they seek to keep Jews and Gentiles separated from one another in the one new man that we should be. So, uh, when we read through, say, Romans 3, and I, I highlighted this last week, and we start in, say, verse, verse um, 28, verse 28 of Romans 3 is essentially uh, Paul uh, stating the same thing that he stated in Galatians 2, 15 and 16 that we've read in our liturgy. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Doesn't that sound nearly identical to what Paul said in um, uh, Galatians 2.16? Uh, 2, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So, Romans 3, um, 3.28 is essentially the same as Galatians 2.16. And so what is that theology? Justification is by faith in Christ, apart from works of the law. So it helps us to gain an appreciation for the book of Galatians and Romans by unlocking this phrase, works of law, which we're going to look at next week. But let's keep reading Romans for a split second. Let's just assume that we, we've already studied works of law, which, again, we're going to look at next week. Romans 3.29 goes on to say, Or is God the God of the Jews only? 
whatever works of the law implies, whatever the works of the law means, it implies something that has to do with an exclusive view or access to God from the Jewish communal perspective. Otherwise, why would Paul have to throw in this hypothetical question, or is God the God of the Jews only? I think Paul wrote that phrase in, in Romans 3.29, is God the God of the Jews only? I think he asked that, that hypothetical question because that indeed was one of the prevailing theological positions of his, of his uh, counterparts in the first century. They were teaching that, the God, that God, that Yahweh, was the God of the Jews only. And therefore, if a person of non-Jewish extraction wished to gain access or audience with God, they had to become a Jew first. What does Paul say, though? What is his answer to his question in the first part of 329? Is he not the God of the Gentiles only? I'm sorry, the Gentiles also? Yes, he answers his own question, of Gentiles also. Now, why does Paul have to answer his question that way? He has to answer, obviously, because the prevailing Jewish view that God was the God of the Jews only not only was um, not only was contrary to what the Torah taught, especially in the Shema, but it was also contrary to the genuine gospel that the Messiah had come to bring salvation to the coastlands. And this is verbs that we read about in the prophets. The Messiah was the God of the Gentiles. Messiah, I'm sorry, God was the God of the Gentiles, and therefore Messiah brought salvation to the Gentiles. And we know that this becomes a central point of theology for Paul because he writes about it in Romans chapter 4. If we, were, if we had time and we studied Romans chapter 4, we would see that. And we're gonna, we would also see it in Galatians chapter 3. But we can catch a snapshot of it in the book of Acts. Just go through the book of Acts and notice how that starting in, say, Acts chapter 10 and forward, actually you can start in chapter 9, but um, start in, in, in chapter 10 we, we kind of officially see some of the first Gentiles coming to faith in Messiah, Cornelius and his family. And notice Peter's reaction in Acts chapter 10 is that Peter and the other Jews who were with them were amazed at the promise of the Ruach Kodesh and the outpouring of the Spirit uh, and in this case, it was evidenced by the, the glossolalia, the speaking in tongues. Notice that it was poured out among the Gentiles without any mention of a proselyte conversion to Judaism. So for Paul to say, is God the God of the Jews only, is to poke and jab at, the very, at one of the very hearts of the theological positions in his day. God is not the God of the Jews only. Is he not? He asked the second question. Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, he is the God of the Gentiles. And therefore, and then he, he applies his logic from his answer in the last clause, yes, of the Gentiles only. Then in masterfully, like a Torah, te like a Torah teacher that he is, in Romans 3.30, Paul says, since God is one, using Shema language, you know, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Hear, O Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one. That's Shema language. Since God is one, one what? One God for both people groups. One God of Jews and Gentiles. That's what we mean by one. Since God is one, not necessarily that since there's only one God, 
That's true as well. But I think the import of Paul's um, referencing the Shema here in Romans 3.30 is that God is the one God of both Jews and Gentiles. That's the context of his since God is one statement taken from the previous pas- uh, the previous verse, the previous passage. So his theology goes like this, since God is one who will justify the circumcised, who are the circumcised again? They are the Jews, who will justify, and that word justified there, if we were to look up in the Greek, is that from that dikaiosune, dikaiao verb, word group that describes um, legal righteousness, or what we might call forensic righteousness, salvation language. It's that courtroom language that God used to declare a sinner acquitted, right? Since God is one who will who will save, we could just substitute the word justify there for save, who will save the Jews, that's the word circumcised there, by faith, and the uncircumcised, those are the Gentiles, through faith. And don't get confused with the by and through language there, the, the different words in Greek, dia, and, and I can't remember what the other word is, dia, by, dia, and through. Uh, I, I think they're functioning synonymously in this particular passage, although there might be some, some nuances. But essentially what Paul's trying to say in verse 30 is, since God is the same God of Jews and Gentiles, if I were to paraphrase it, since God is the God of Jews and Gentiles, who will save the Jews by faith in Jesus and the Gentiles through faith in Jesus. That's what he's trying to say in verse 30. Then, notice verse 31. This is for those people who think that the Torah has been done away with. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith in Jesus? Another rhetorical question. And I'm going to close with the answer. Paul's answer. By no means. On the contrary, in other words, by no means we do not overthrow the law by faith in Jesus. By no means, on the contrary, he, he, he tells us in strong language, we uphold the law. We uphold the law. And with that, we'll draw the commentary to a close. Let me close in prayer. For those of you who are listening to this commentary uh, after the fact, I'll close in prayer. But for those of you who are in the class with me, stay with me and we'll just dialogue midrash for about another 15 minutes or so. Okay? Let's pray. Avinu Malkinu, our Father and our King, Lord, we thank you that you are our God. For indeed, Shema teaches, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Who is the our in this passage, Lord? The our is, is Israel. But who is Israel? Israel is Jew and Gentile, brought together under the banner of Messiah. Therefore, when we say the Lord, our God, the Lord is one, he is our God, We Jews and Gentiles declare that He is our God. He is the Lord alone. He is the only Lord. As some versions say, the Lord alone. He is our God, the Lord alone. Thank you, Lord, that you, as we speak as Jews and Gentiles, thank you, Lord, that you are our God and that we are your people. We Jews and Gentiles are your people. And because of this, we know that your words your promises, your truths, your Torah is for us, both Jews and Gentiles. Thank you, Lord, for this central truth. Thank you that in Messiah, all of these things are possible because we read that in Messiah, all the promises are yes and amen. And if the promises are couched in the Torah and they are actuated by Messiah Yeshua, they are brought to pass in Yeshua, then if we are in Messiah, then the promises indeed are yes and amen. In Yeshua. Thank you, Lord, that you brought your Son 
to bring us into proper fellowship with you and that you are filling us with your words and that you are causing us to be lights, to be a witness, to be salt, to make a difference in our communities, in our families, that you're causing us to be ambassadors for your great name. Bless each and every student who's gathered tonight. I pray that you'll continue to heal them, raise them up, give them strength to speak that which they know from their heart. Give them um, the uh, uh, give them the supernatural hunger to be filled with the Spirit and to wear the armor of Ephesians chapter six. Help us, Lord, to uh, be diligent about the Father's business. Lord, let us be careful to do all of these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y E S H U A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>